My name is J.W. Oker. I'm an author, and I like to go out and look for weird stuff. I call it oddity. For more than a decade, I've sought out oddities of nature, oddities of art, oddities of culture and history. I believe that within a tank or two of gas, of any point in this country, is some seriously cool oddity, and that we all should go check it out. This is Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast. It was the sweetest thing my GPS had ever said to me. Turn right on the extraterrestrial highway. This was a big one for me. A childhood of reading stories about close encounters, UFO sightings, alien abductions, picking up John Keel books because they had cool covers, reading Whitley Strieber's Communion because, well, the same reason, watching reenactment shows on TV late at night. Then seeing all of that interest manifest in culture in the X-Files decade. I wanted to believe, but in the end, belief was irrelevant. I loved the stories and the mythology that was being accreted implant by implant, anal probe by anal probe. The extraterrestrial highway is a stretch of about 100 miles of road northwest of Las Vegas. Its maiden name is State Route 375, but it was renamed back in the X-Files decade. It connects U.S. Route 6 to the north and U.S. Route 93 to the south, It also skirts a section of secluded desert that is home to a group of Air Force facilities, including Area 51. They say there have been strange sightings in the sky along this highway, which makes sense as it parallels an Air Force base. But we were driving in the daytime, so the only fire in the sky we saw was the desert sun. Due to where we were coming from, a clown-themed motel beside a graveyard, to be honest, but that's another story, we entered from the northern end of the road. There isn't a lot at that end, just desert, rocky outcroppings, and a few signs warning of low-flying aircraft and cattle crossing, which obviously offered the opportunity for UFO and cattle mutilation jokes, respectively. But then we hit Rachel. Rachel's a tiny, 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 tiny town right in the middle of the extraterrestrial highway. I mean, it's like 3.75 buildings small. But it does the best with what it has, and what it has is an alien mythology. The welcome sign for Rachel features the silhouette of a flying saucer and the words population, humans, yes, aliens, question mark. It's a cool sign, but it's overshadowed by a more official looking one just beyond, a reflective green highway marker that dubs the road the extraterrestrial highway. Ostensibly, anyway. The sign is almost completely covered with stickers from passersby who want it known to fellow travelers that they are not alone in the universe. But then you come to the real UFO hotspot in town. The little alien. Let me spell that for you. That is A apostrophe L E apostrophe I N N. So A Lee N. This is a motel, restaurant, bar, gift shop, a lot of slashes in there that's been around since just a couple of years prior to the X Files decade. A mock up of the place was actually featured in the X Files in season six, Dreamland Part Two, where Michael McKean plays an MIB who switches bodies with Mulder just outside of Area 51. I'm a big X-Files fan, so we're just going to have to get over that for this episode. Out front of the little alien is a sign that says, Earthlings Welcome, and features a classic gray with those big glinty eyes. Beside it is a metal flying saucer, hoisted up on the hook of an old tow truck. There's also a large antenna-like apparatus that I at first thought was part of the alien theme, but it turned out to be stranger than that. According to a placard affixed to it, 
The contraption was a community environmental monitoring program station. Apparently, they're set up at various points in the area to monitor weather and radiation levels. And the reason why you don't have one on your street is because you're not neighbors with the Nevada test site, where they tested nuclear bombs back in the day, and these days still blow things up. But of all the strangeness surrounding this humble little building covered with alien murals, the strangest has to be the Independence Day time capsule. I'm talking Independence Day in the Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum sense, not in the George Washington and Thomas Jefferson one. The time capsule was buried in 1996, the same year the road it was on became the extraterrestrial highway, and the same year the movie came out. It's marked by a cement column topped by what would have been a movie hashtag had it come out a decade later. ID4. A bronze plaque on it tells the story. Let me read it to you. This is pretty good. On the 18th day of April, AD 1996, 20th Century Fox hereby dedicates this time capsule and beacon for visitors from distant stars to the state of Nevada and the extraterrestrial highway. This time capsule will serve as a beacon to be opened in the year AD 2050, by which time interplanetary travelers shall be regular guests of our planet Earth. Signed, Governor Bob Miller of the state of Nevada, 20th Century Fox Film Corporation, and the filmmakers and cast of Independence Day. Very, very odd. Now that's a marketing stunt. I can't find exactly what the contents of that time capsule are, but I assume it's full of Independence Day action figures, just like my closet. Maybe also Will Smith's cigar is there and Brent Spiner's wig. Who knows? I guess we will in the year AD 2050, when there's all kinds of interplanetary travelers on Earth. But the little alien is quite the sci-fi beacon for such an unassuming place out in the middle of nowhere. And even if the whole restaurant was an empty set, it would have been a worthwhile stop. So we stepped inside, hesitantly. This is the kind of joint where neither atmosphere nor food is a priority, merely existence. There are basic tables and chairs spread across a tiled floor, a bar stretched along one wall. It was painted with a cosmic scene on the front and was shaded by a furry roof of dollar bills. About half a dozen people were inside. And it was covered in UFO merchandise, like the stuff just bred there. We grabbed a table, ordered up some hot dogs and chips, and kind of pieced together a world where this existed and the events in our lives that led us to it. The staff was very friendly, and a woman named Pat, whom I would later discover was the owner, scuttled about, greeting people, scolding me for letting my infant shove a straw in her mouth, and graciously giving my five-year-old free reign of the place. I, of course, followed suit. There was every type of alien-themed merchandise on its shelves. Wine, Christmas stockings, giant signs for rolling out on your roof that said, Pick me. Just kidding about that one, but patent pending. There was also general alien decorations, including topographical maps of the area, UFO photography, and amateur paintings of aliens. Basically, it was decorated like my bedroom when I was 12. Perfectly, in other words. One bit that seemed to stick out, probably for being bright yellow, but also for seeming to be a few decades newer than everything else around it, was an autographed poster on the wall. This poster was from the 2011 movie Paul, where Simon Pegg and Nick Frost pick up an alien in their RV while touring extraterrestrial sites on their way to San Diego Comic-Con. They actually filmed a scene right in the restaurant and right at that bar with the furry roof. Again, crazy place in the middle of the desert. And honestly, a great place. The entire extraterrestrial highway would be a real letdown without it, no doubt. But as much as I would have liked to hang out there or even stay the night, we still had one thing on our itinerary that we had to do. After I walked up to the counter to pay our bill, I asked Pat, 
So how do I get to Area 51? That's not a question the likes of me should ever be able to ask, were the events of human history not seasoned with the bazaar? But it is, and I did. The real-life military facility that is Area 51 has become an absolutely mythical place. You can't dig into anything ET without stumbling over this otherwise bland designation. The basic mythology goes like this. In 1947, an alien craft crashed in nearby Roswell, New Mexico. The wreckage and the bodies, or survivors depending on who's telling the tale, were sent to Area 51 where the advanced technology was reverse engineered and implemented into U.S. military aircraft. You don't think we came up with the F-117 Nighthawk stealth fighter out of thin air, did you? There are other science fiction rumors and stories about the place, but that's the backbone they're all kind of hung on. The truth that is out there is more parochial. Probably. Area 51 and other Air Force facilities in the general area test advanced jets, because advanced jets have to be tested, and often they need to be tested in secret. It's not their fault that the Barbara Streisand effect put little green men all over their runways. Although, some say the alien stories were created by the military itself to hide the real goings down at the base. Why not? Regardless, the story is awesome, and I wanted to be as close as I possibly could to it. Are you headed toward Las Vegas? Pat asked me. I nodded. Then you're going to want the front entrance. If you were heading the other way on the highway, I'd send you to the back entrance, which has an actual gate blocking the way. She gave us directions down to the mile marker, and I thanked her. But like every good harbinger, the directions came with a warning. Remember, the entrance I'm sending you to, the front entrance, doesn't have a gate. So whatever happens, do not set foot beyond the posted signs. Don't even pretend to. In fact, there's a little pull-off right before the signs, and I suggest you immediately turn your vehicle around before you get out to show the security guards that you have no intention of crossing it. Then I asked her, can I take photos? She said, the sign says no photography beyond this point, so as long as you don't cross that point, you should be fine. Take as many photos as you want. What happens if I accidentally cross the boundary line? I asked. She looked dead at me in the eyes and said, they'll immediately stop you, confiscate your car and your camera, and have the local police put you in jail for trespassing or make you pay a fine. It's a simple thing to avoid, but every week it seems like somebody fools around and crosses that line and gets in trouble. Pat wasn't just telling me a story to thrill the tourists. I'd read accounts attesting to the exact fact that she laid out for me. And there's even a great video online from one alien-themed tour operator who absentmindedly drove his group right past the signs. Definitely check that out. I'll link to it in the show notes. So reluctantly, we left the little alien and drove for 25 miles south where we encountered a dirt road with a stop sign. Seemed like the right place. The stop sign was covered in stickers just like the extraterrestrial highway signs. Until recently, there was more at that intersection than just a stop sign. It's also the site of the infamous black mailbox. The black mailbox is exactly what it sounds like, except it's white. For decades, people used the mailbox as a meeting point to skywatch because it was the only thing around for miles. But they also rifled through the mail looking for military secrets and stuck Christmas cards to Alf in it. Sometimes people would use it for target practice. Again, it was the only thing out there. In reality, this wasn't the mailbox for Area 51. This was the mailbox of a local cattle rancher named Steve Medlin. In 1996, the same year of Independence Day, he got tired of people tampering with all of his Valpac coupons, so he replaced the original black one with a blocky white mailbox that was bulletproof and padlocked. He even added a second box where people could stick in alien-related mail. Then, in 2014, it disappeared. I guess he just got tired of having a famous mailbox. Regardless, that meant I had missed it. The black mailbox was gone, and it was a part of the lore I would never, ever get to experience. 
but that's all right because I was on my way to the border of Area 51. We turned onto the dirt road, and right at that point, a funny feeling in the pit of my stomach started. I'm a nervous guy in general, but even though I wasn't planning on crossing the property line of the base, I assumed I was breaking 80 other laws without realizing it. But I had to do this. Even if my wife and kids had to watch me led away in handcuffs screaming the truth is out there, I had to do this. Even though the road was unmarked, my GPS named it Groom Road, which makes sense. Area 51 is on Groom Lake, which is a salt flat. Much of Groom Road cuts through public land, and that's why there was no gate at the turnoff. That's why people like me could drive deep, deep toward Area 51 before hitting that border, because it was all on public land up to that point. The road was decently maintained, but we still had to take it relatively slow. We were kicking up a massive cloud of dust among all the cacti, and the sun was getting closer to the horizon. That was another thing I was worried about. I didn't want to be inching up to an invisible line after dark. Then, in the distance, we saw another shimmering dust cloud from another vehicle. Whether it was coming toward us or going away from us, we weren't sure. Pat, back at the Alien, had told us that the no trespassing signs that marked the edge of the base were 14 miles down that dirt road. I was extremely grateful that she gave us the exact mileage at that point, because the slow pace and the isolation and the anticipation stretched that line of dirt into a forever drive. If I didn't have something to track on the odometer, I might have given up too early. As we neared that dust cloud in front of us, we finally passed the car making it. It was traveling in the opposite direction. The driver flipped us a Vulcan salute, and that made me feel a thousand times better. So thank you, whoever you are, for that Vulcan salute. It was about that time, though, that we saw the white trucks sitting on the hills on either side of the road. These were the infamous guards. Photographs and testimony I'd seen online revealed them to be dressed in camouflage and toting these terrifying automatic weapons inside those white metal carapaces. The men in white trucks had obviously been watching us from the second we turned onto Groom Road, but this was our first sight of them. The trucks just sat there up on their hills, all glinty in the low sun. The drivers, I assume, bored and disgruntled enough to hope we'd cross the line. After all, all of their friends and colleagues were back at the base doing exciting things like dissecting aliens. And then we saw the warning signs. They were simple red and white placards, one on each side of the road, forbidding entry and threatening six months in jail, a $1,000 fine, or both. The invisible boundaries stretched between them. Like Pat had said, there was no gate. I did exactly what Pat told me to do, and turned the van around. I also made sure that my five-year-old stayed in the van. I just didn't trust her in these circumstances. Lindsay and I got out of the car and walked up to the signs to get pictures. I made sure I gave myself a good 10 feet of buffer and wondered why they just didn't put a freaking gate up. And then the white truck to my right started moving. It suddenly occurred to me that the signs didn't say no photography beyond this point, like Pat had assured me. Instead, the exact language on the signs was photography of this area prohibited. And I had, in fact, just taken photos of the area. I turned my back to the trucks and started walking toward my wife. I explained to her in a low voice what I'd just realized, and as I continued walking, I started to slip the memory card out of my camera. They could confiscate the camera, my car, my license, but they weren't going to take my memories of the clown motel. My wife didn't move. She just kept looking over my head at the truck on the hill. Finally, she smiled. Looks like they're just turning around, she said, 
and I immediately felt a mixture of relief and disappointment. And I'm not sure what that latter emotion was doing in there. So we took some more photos and then left. The drive back was exhilarating. It was a childhood dream fulfilled way, way, way past the age of childhood. We had played chicken with Area 51 and survived. We were still free people. By the time we hit the asphalt, dusk had finally deepened. So we continued south on the extraterrestrial highway. Eventually, my GPS piped up, turn left onto US 93 South. It was the most depressing thing my GPS has ever said to me. And that's it. That is my story of chasing down one of the most important sites in American extraterrestrial mythology. It's actually not the only time I've seen important sites in that lore. Come back for next week's episode and maybe I'll tell you another one. Maybe I'll tell you the time I traced the entire route of Betty and Barney Hill, the most famous alien abductees in America. Maybe I'll tell you about the time I went to the Exeter UFO Festival, an annual shindig thrown to commemorate that time that UFOs visited that town in New Hampshire. Or maybe I'll tell you about the time I went to see the monument in Western Massachusetts dedicated to an alien abduction there. I've personally never had an encounter with visitors from outer space, but I have seen a lot of cool stuff related to it. But then again, maybe next time I will tell you a story that has nothing to do with this. Some other oddity, some other fascinating site or artifact, because this country is bursting at its borders with oddity. This has been Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast. <laughs>